hello. This is Laurie and Tori coming to you from the haunted corners of New England, and you're listening to the Something Wicked podcast, the show that delves deep into the topics of true crime, haunted histories, and all things paranormal. Dedicated to those that love to know all the spoopy and gruesome details about psycho serial killers, ghastly ghouls, and creepy cryptids with tales to make you sleep with the lights on. It's finally Halloween! My favorite day of the whole year, when ghosts and ghoulies come out to rob the masses of boatloads of cavity-causing confectionaries, and we can let our darker sides truly shine with a bit of makeup and overpriced rags that the conglomerate that is Spirit Halloween shamelessly provides as soon as they sniff out the nearest abandoned space for rent. (laughs) Side note! I do, in fact, love Spirit and Michael's around spoopy season because it's the only time of year I can shop for my year-round home decor. I mean, that's the only thing to do, man. Yeah. Home decor all over the place. (laughs) The point in being, where did this all begin? Why do we have these crazy traditions of carving jack-o'-lanterns or dressing up and asking strangers for candy? Especially, why do we go ask strangers for candy? That's my biggest question here. How the fuck? <laughs> Why is the night considered the scariest time of the year? Well, no worries, my lovelies, because all that and more will be covered on today's special spoopy episode as we deep dive into the history of Halloween. So tie up that ponytail, bob for that extra sweet candied apple, and let's get it. <laughs> Welcome back to the show, and for those of you new to the podcast, I'll say thanks for tuning in. And welcome. As we said in the intro, we are going to be going over the history of Halloween. We are covering where it all started, how it developed over the years, and the origins of some of the most popular traditions that we hold dear to this day. That's right, folks. The entire episode is going to be one big fangirl freakout for your girl because it's a whole-ass segment of History Horse Anonymous. (laughs) (laughs) And here we go. Go. Woohoo! Light is fading. Coldness creeps back into the world. In October, the solar god of many names begins to fall into shadow, like a sinking ship. And all around him, darkness floods in like the deep waters of the sea. As the earth goddess bestows the last boon of the harvest, so that her children might be sustained through the dark of winter, before the plants wither, and another cycle concludes. The great thought made form has gone away, no longer breathing life into this world. Estranged from his holy union, the earth goddess becomes the dark mother, who in the designs of her mystery taketh as she gives. Yet it is obvious to any that live upon the earth that life will return once more. And so, in Irish myth, the pagan festival of Samhain, meaning summer's end, observed on October 31st, was perhaps most aptly described by the heroine Emmer as when the summer goes to its rest. The current traditions of our Halloween only stem back from the Middle Ages and early Christianity, but the magic of All Hallows' Eve itself goes much farther back than that. 
by thousands of years to the early Gaelic people of Ireland. So let's travel back now to that ancient time. Back before we had stories of witches flying across a full moon and children in costumes wandered neighborhoods in search of sweets. Let's go to a time when the spirits of our ancestors walk the earth, seen in the faces of the bonfires that beckon them home on that cold October night. In Gaelic and Irish mythology, we see the onset of winter expressed in both the deities of the sun and the earth. Tal Chu, the goddess of the harvest, helped the people work the land and taught them to farm. As a result of her monumental affairs, she died of exhaustion. Wow, what a way to fucking go. Yeah. The god Lu, the god of the sun, and foster son to Tal Chu, mourning her death, established the harvest festival in her honor. Lu's wife, Eriu, was the queen of the forest, and together they ruled in perpetual summer. But he too would meet his demise at the hands of the dark Fomorian prince Elatha, who drove a spear through him during his only vulnerable state, exiting a bath with one foot on a cauldron and the other on a ram. Uh, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> it explains it. I really fucking hope so. I know, so, it sounds fucking weird. <laughs> that's so strange and very specific. The cauldron and the ram are symbols of the summer and winter solstice. As the sun is in the astrological house of Cancer during the summer solstice and Capricorn during the winter solstice, having one foot on each signifies the sun's temporal position between the two astrological houses during the fall equinox. That makes so much more sense. This being when a solar god is slain as the nights begin to grow longer than the days. That still is silly. (laughs) (laughs) But it does make more sense from the astrological standpoint. Yes. I know, when you first hear it, it's like, I'm sorry, he was doing what? It's like, was he trying to get reception on an old ass? TV? Is that what's going on? Stand in the corner of the room with fucking one foot in the air. Maybe maybe if you're upside down, it'll fucking work. I don't know. Oh my god. Stand on your head, it's fine. (laughs) Elatha elopes with the earth goddess Eru, symbolizing the forces of darkness gaining control over the earth for the next half of the year. Lu's son, Kuhalin, who can be interpreted as the human incarnation of Lu himself, is later born through immaculate conception in winter, symbolizing the rebirth of the sun as the days begin to grow longer after the winter solstice. So I gotta be entirely honest there. I saw the C-U mm-hmm. and C-H, and my brain just immediately went, Cthulhu! <laughs> I don't blame you, yeah. but still. Kuhulan. Yes. That's, yeah, that's proper. In autumn, as things that grow in nature begin to wither and die... Naturally, humans turn their attentions towards the contemplations of death and what lies beyond the transience of mortality. When earthly life had faded, people felt that the physical world was brought closer to that of the spirit. To the ancient Celts, passage between this world and the other world became possible during this time, and thus it was an auspicious time for the interaction between human beings and the gods, fairies, and monsters of the other world. This is indicated in several Celtic tales which take place on Samhain, the boyhood deeds of Fionn, in which the characters of the story are approached and confronted by a variety of otherworldly beings. The final battle between the Tuatha de Danann and the Fomorians, in which the Fomorians were defeated and purged from Ireland, took place in Samhain. The Tuatha de Danann were the gods of pre-Celtic Gaelic Ireland, a group to which the deities described earlier belonged. Many of them and or their attributes were incorporated into Celtic-Irish religion. Another aspect of this metaphysical shift was that the laws of nature seemed to be temporarily suspended. 
allowing supernatural feats that otherwise could not be performed. The mythical character Angus was said to transform himself into a swan on Samhain in an attempt to woo a daughter of the gods. It's always a swan. Mm -hmm. The apparent barrier between worlds that seemingly became thin or penetrable at this time is often referred to as a veil, which in turn refers to the bridal veil of the Egyptian goddess Isis, wife of solar Osiris, the world virgin mother, nature personified, behind which the secrets of the mysteries of creation were kept. The alleged words inscribed on her effigy read, I am all that has been and all shall be, and no mortal man has ever lifted my mantle. She represented supreme wisdom and understanding, holding the keys to the secrets of the universe and the expression of the masculine principle of divine thought through physical manifestation. A parallel can be drawn here between the Celtic goddess of winter, Kaliok, and the word from which her name was derived, meaning the veiled one. She is said to have saved Lou as an infant. She ruled in partnership with Brigid, the goddess of spring, assuming her role in Samhain until Beltane on May 1st. By some interpretations, they are two aspects of the same deity. Oh, that's neat. At the end of the harvest season, halfway between the fall equinox and the winter solstice, was the festival of Samhain, wherein the gods were propitiated for good fortune in the coming months of darkness. It marked the beginning as what they saw as the dark half of the year. In addition to the four solar holidays, seen in various forms among the Indo-European traditions, which marked the midpoint of the seasons, there were also four which came in between them, which marked the change of season, of which Samhain was one. The Samhain tradition probably predates Celtic, going back to the original inhabitants of Ireland. The Mound of Hostages, located at the Hill of Tara, dates back 5,000 years, roughly 3,000 years before the Celtic people even arrived in mm. Ireland. Yeah. <laughs> This site is astronomically aligned with the sun on October 31st, whose morning rays shine directly into the main chamber. Evidence of pre-Celtic Irish culture can be seen in many of the mound sites around Ireland. They were most likely used for worship and the internment of important people. Many of these ancient sites, not only in Ireland, but worldwide, are aligned with the solar cycle, such that the rays of the rising and or setting sun cast into key features of the structure during the solstice and equinoxes which is a testament in the astronomical and architectural prowess of the ancients. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. While we know that Samhain was indeed a major Irish pagan festival, which was celebrated well into the early medieval period, it seems not to have been the case for surrounding countries, which presumably also saw Celtic migrations, apart from Scottish, particularly in areas of Irish migration, Wales, and the Isle of Man. This diminishes the possibility of Samhain being a broadly Celtic festival. In fact, recent scholarship has begun to question the idea that there was a mass westward migration of Celtic people at all. And even the use of the term Celtic itself, as it relates to homogenous, widespread ancient European culture. If there was such a migration, they may have assimilated, or blended more so, overwritten indigenous cultures. Therefore, while the Celts probably had some form of fall festival, Samhain seems to be indigenously Irish, as further evidenced by the Hill of Ward. But that doesn't mean that there weren't similar observances outside of Ireland and its neighbors. For instance, Scandinavia had their own beginning of winter festival, Viternitor, which is winter nights, from October 11th to the 17th. During Samhain, the burial mounds were thought to serve as portals to the other world. These areas were likely considered to be naturally places of spiritual potency, before being built upon, and were chosen for this reason. Efforts were often made by ancient people to aid the dead in their journey to the afterlife. So, choosing such an area for burial would make sense in this context. Places of elevation were often seen as being closer to the spirit world. Yeah, okay. 
These mounds were also said to be the abode of the Ishi, the people of the mounds, or bright folk. In the tale of Finn McCool, he travels to a fairy fort where many men had vanished after seeking the Queen of the Hill. There, he witnessed a doorway open up and a glowing fire within it. For the Celts and many agrarian cultures, religion was intimately connected with the seasons and cycles of growth. In autumn, the northern peoples had to produce and store large stockpiles of food in order to survive the winter. The crops were harvested, and a portion of the livestock were slaughtered, especially the weakest of the herd, to provide more food and to reduce strain on their stores of grain. The Anglo-Saxons referred to November as Blood Month. Offering some of this precious crop and animal supply would have been a fitting sacrifice as something of great value, the exchange of life for a life, as it seemed to be woven into the fabric of nature and therefore somehow fundamentally necessary. Flush from the harvest, there would be a great feast to mark the occasion. Despite the dark undertones of the season, Samhain was a jubilant affair, seemingly in the act of passionate defiance against the foreboding gloom of the coming winter. By its commencement, the time for war and trade had ended, the harvest had been completed, and so it was a time for kings to gather the tribes for a grand assembly. These gatherings were common for Celtic myths. According to a 12th century manuscript, the face of Ullat, an ancient Irish kingdom, lasted, quote, three days before Samhain and the three days after Samhain and Samhain itself. They would gather at Magnol Thumna, and during these seven days, there would be nothing but meetings and games and entertainment and eating and feasting. There was also said to be much boasting and brawling. <laughs> Barbaral. Just debauchery. Get the liquor. <laughs> this much of the nature of Samhain is known, having been described in several accounts. It was also believed that the fairies, as human beings' supernatural counterparts, also had their own festivities and games during this time, feasting upon nuts at the mounds of Brunia. <laughs> and probably fucking with every human they can. Probably. Samhain has a reputation of having a celebratory, wild nature more so than religious. In fact, all the records we have recall scenes of revelry over piety. <laughs> no shit. Yes. <laughs> While there was likely a religious component as well, this is less understood based on the historical literature. Whether or not this means Samhain was a less important festival is unclear. I wouldn't say it's less important. I don't, It's the yeah. fucking last hurrah before the bullshit of winter. Exactly. You're stuck in your house. Sources that describe in detail other pagan festivals like Beltane are peculiarly lacking in any description of Samhain rites. Huh. Nonetheless, the great fairs at which many would gather were notorious among the early Christians. I mean. <laughs> For those who labored on the farms, Samhain was at the end of the work season. When farmers, herders, maids, and servants received their biannual wages and returned home after a long stint of isolation and toil. I'm sorry, wait. Back up. Biannual yep. wages? They get paid every other year? Yep. That's... I thought biweekly was bad. Yeah? Oh, I feel like a dick. <laughs> <laughs> and so, many people were looking to let loose and indulge themselves. Knowing that the months of confinement indoors were approaching, three to seven days of wild festivities would ensue. Ah, uh, yeah. Week of vacation before <laughs> yeah. fucking cold darkness. Yes, please. On a deeper level, belief in the temporary suspension of natural law seems to thematically coincide with the anonymity of mask wearing. 
temporarily assuming a new identity and giving human beings a comfortable outlet through which they could express their hidden desires. Oh. That's not sketchy at all. (laughs) Just as a veil between worlds thinned on Samhain, so too did the veil between conscious and subconscious mind, allowing the diamonds of our shadows to roam free. Diamonds. Yes. Oh god, I will punch you in the teeth. No, you won't. Don't start that shit. I... (laughs) hate that song here comes one of my favorite parts though because euphoric debauchery is a whole mood yes it is (laughs) bacchanalian rites can be a method of quieting the conscious mind and allowing access to the subconscious which in occult circles is often believed to be the link to the divine and it is fucking glorious in my opinion getting a magic high is one of the best feelings ever yeah but i digress (laughs) This theme may also be aptly represented in the werewolf lore, a creature prominently featured in the gallery of Halloween spooks. This, along with the vampire, became a popular literary device in the Victorian culture. And speaking of the age of gothic literature in regards to Halloween... Here we go. (laughs) It is no coincidence that many Halloween tales are often set in the Victorian era, or roughly between 1830 and 1900. The stereotypical haunted house, even in today's world, is typically a Victorian one. That's hilarious. The ghosts that inhabit these houses are well-mannered, educated, dapper, yet mysterious Victorians who died in the oddest of circumstances. Poor little kids who were pushed out an attic window. (laughs) (laughs) The Victorian era was the height of gothic literature. Bram Stoker, Edgar Allan Poe, Mary Shelley, Nathaniel Hawthorne, and Radcliffe, Robert Louis Stevenson, Charlotte Bronte... Poets like John Keats and Lord Byron, stop me before I keep going, please. Uh, I was going to stop you a while ago, I but really... my brain just kept going Edgar Allan Poe. I really could go on gushing about it for fucking hours. I know. <laughs> this is why I said here we go. <laughs> there are those that would say that these authors even outdo us as far as making a good story goes. This is, of course, up to major debate. Recent generations have made some very good stuff, and many horror movies today have been major equal inspirations to the Halloween celebration, but it is worth pointing out that we often find ourselves looking to these classics for inspiration in the first place. I mean, yeah. Although I gotta say, Hocus Pocus is fucking one of those (laughs) new era shit. Well, I mean, not really, because the first one was, what, 90s or something like that? No, but again, drawing inspiration. Salem Witch Trials. I mean... Drawing from history. Yeah. That's true. (laughs) But even these clever Victorians looked even further back for inspiration themselves to the legends and tales of their European heritage of ghosts, vampires, boogeymen, demons, monsters, witches, the undead, and much more. One shining example of this, of course, is Bram Stoker's Dracula. You want to talk about Here We Go. Yep. (laughs) Published on May 26, 1897. This story tells of the mysterious Count Dracula, a handsome, intelligent, and charismatic nobleman who lives in a castle in the Carpathian Mountains. I do not say blah, blah, blah. (laughs) With the help of a Mr. Jonathan Harker, he moves to England. The Count's mysterious side, however, is quite dark. He is indeed a parasitic, undead, blood-sucking monster, a vampire. When he arrives to England to feed upon the living, it's up to a team led by Dr. Abraham Van Helsing to stop him. With the movies especially, Dracula has since been the inspiration for the archetypal vampire, fang teeth, a dark but gentlemanly or ladylike outfit with cloak, 
pale skin, red eyes, and possession of supernatural powers such as great strength, the ability to crawl along walls, turn into a bat, and a bite which may turn others into vampires. Don't forget levitating. Mm. A vampire does, however, also have weaknesses, a sensitivity to sunlight, garlic, silver, and the crucifix. According to legend, a vampire can be killed with a silver bullet. Yes, also valid for vampires, not just werewolves. A stake to the heart, fire, or decapitation. Count Dracula, of course, was based on Vlad Tepish, a Wallachian prince born in 1431. Didn't we go over that in an episode? A little bit. <laughs> His father was given the name Dracul when he joined the Order of the Dragon. Dracul in Romanian means dragon, though later it came to mean the devil. The title was then passed down to his son, Vlad III. I will be going into much further detail in future episodes between the history of vampires and the story of Vlad Tepish himself. Which, yes, we did. There's little bits at a time, and I'm just going to end up doing, like, one full... Oh, wasn't it the Urshabet episode? Mm-hmm. Okay. He kind of came up in kinda it because there, yeah. of, like, the whole where she grew up and everything Dukes like that. and mm-hmm. royalty and all that fun stuff. Yup. <laughs> Getting back to where we left off, though. <laughs> the Bacchanalian rites. I'm sorry, can you say that one more time? Bacchanalian. Mm-hmm. I like it. And the fact that both the werewolf and vampire were seen as a symbol of malignant expression of the shadow due to sexual repression. No shit. <laughs> really? Furthermore, indulging in sexual urges, what is normally seen as part of the lower animal self, which in many spiritual schools was antithetical to the higher spiritual self, which transcended out of the animal man through discipline and higher modalities of living. Which basically, it's like... Very fancy fucking way to say. You get horny, we're gonna beat it out of you, because Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) The fanciest way to say that. (laughs) Down, boy, down! Put the racket away. <laughs> Paradoxically, in some cases, there was likely a belief that sometimes these carnal acts were a way to elevate the spirit as it brought the participant into a state of ecstasy and reestablished his or her connection to nature. Well, no shit, sex is awesome. <laughs> I mean, that is a fairly solid belief there, in my opinion. Yeah. Maybe I'm just, you know... Oh, but see, but like I mentioned, this is what Beltane is for. Ah, Beltane. (laughs) God, I can't wait for it. (laughs) Anyway. Which in many pagan belief systems was recognized as divine. I mean, the gods also have a lot of sex. Just saying. Well, most of them, not all of them. Zeus. Anyway, from from the sparse documentation and archaeological evidence, attempts have been made to reconstruct the ritualistic nature of Samhain. It has been theorized that a prominent or even central rite was the burning of the sacred bonfire. Evidence of large-scale burning was discovered at the Hill of Ward in Ireland. That's really cool. This site is a short distance from Tara and is thought to be connected as these fires would have been visible from Tara. Sacrificial offerings were thrown into these fires. In the ancient world, immolation was commonly believed to be a means by which spirit consumed something that was given. The demiurge, or being that created the universe, was sometimes described as a flame, notably in Hermetic as well as Abrahamic religions. The term bonfire is thought to be etymologically derived from the term bonefire, likely due to its practice, mostly the ancient Celts burning animal bones to ward off evil spirits. Hmm. A ritual was observed in Cargoth, wherein the people would throw torches into the fire and recite the words, Brave bonefire, burn to keep the fairies away. <laughs> yeah. 
Please keep those motherfuckers away from us. <laughs> While the evidence for the bonfire is sporadic and localized, it does seem to have its place among the various pagan rituals of the British Isles. But attempts to define Samhain as a fire festival have been criticized due to the lack of any references to it in the ancient myths. Another and perhaps primary function of Samhain rituals, like the bonfire, as stated, was to ward against evil. Evidence for this comes to us in records of the rural folk traditions from the late Middle Ages into the 19th century, documented by clerical scribes. These practices were probably relics of ancient paganism. By this time, they were in decline, and their contents were recorded in the context of prohibition by religious authorities. Oh, really? The first mention of bonfires in the historical record comes from a 1589 prohibition by the Sterling clergy of, quote, hollow mass fires. It is in these traditions that we see an acknowledgement of supernatural threats, thought to be in play on Samhain in the form of creatures coming forth from the void and humans who might exploit Samhain's magical potency to wield destructive magic. Naturally, there was a need to guard against this. In Wales, there was the concept of Isgrignos, or spirit night, a night in which spirits roam the land, haunting churchyards, farms, and crossroads, the most dangerous being on the eve of October 31st. In Ireland, it was referred to as Goblin Night. Goblin! <laughs> in the northern Shetland Isles, it was Hollow Mass, a time when trolls came out of the wilderness to steal cattle and crops. In Lancaster, England, there was the practice of witch lading, where people would walk the foothills of the Pennines at night holding candles. If one were to go out, it would mean that a witch was nearby and an attack <laughs> was imminent. I I don't I can't even I don't have words for that. I who thought that would work? People were dumb. Did they enchant the candles? Guess what? You're a witch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this random chick comes up to you and blows out your candle. <laughs> witch Just Oh my god. It is unclear whether the belief in and preoccupation with the dangers of Samhain is an accurate depiction of the original Samhain zeitgeist or a later product of Christian paranoia or some mix of both. Probably that. <laughs> which, wait, which one? Mix both. of both? Yeah, I can see that. Taking ancient folklore, like all these priests and stuff, and going, oh, it's this way because demons. I mean, it's everybody like... has some weird thing that they're fucking freaked out about around the same time. Goblins, yeah. trolls, fucking mm -hmm. witches. Whatever the case may be, it is evident that the belief that late October was a particularly numinous time for better or for worse is authentically ancient and widespread. The ritual function of the bonfire was manifold, just as the meaning of its symbolism. A symbol is, by design, an expression of a complex principle, such that words fall short of defining it. Spiritual principles, by their transcendent nature, are also felt to be beyond words, and thus intellectual apprehension which is why symbols have always been used in religion and the occult. These are the traditions that carried on into the Middle Ages. Bone fires became Walpurgis, <laughs> Walpurgis, which were personal fires burned near farms to protect families from witches and fairies. Here we go again. The night has traditionally been associated with evil. This is why the color black and creatures of the night, like toads, bats, and cats, were cast in the role of witches' familiars in the imaginations of the medieval inquisitors. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> also something we will cover in the History of Witchcraft episode, BT Dubs. On a physical level, the association of the night with evil may be traced back to man's early days living in the wilderness, as many predators that pose danger to humans moved under cover of darkness. 
and on a metaphysical level as the night is connected to dreams and the mystery of the subconscious and thus the supernatural. It is the embodiment of the unknown. Having a source of light gave people the ability to detect possible threats and a general sense of comfort. In the rituals of Kargoth, people would lie down next to the fire so that the smoke would pour over them. The warding, as well as purifying properties of smoke, is a ubiquitous belief seen in rituals across cultures through the burning of sacred herbs and incense. A belief in this purification can be seen in the Samhain fire rite, where, if a person runs across the coals, it was thought to bring good luck, as blessings are believed to be bestowed upon the spiritually pure. As a light in the darkness, and a source of heat, in the bitter cold of winter, the power of fire is self-evident, and was transformative for humanity. A broader function of the fire rites may have been to counter the darkness of winter, being kept lit through the night, perpetually burning like the sun, symbolic of its eternal nature, like the eternal nature of spirit. As the embodiment of pure divine source, all house fires would be extinguished and relit with the flame of the bonfire to cleanse the home and connect a plurality to the divine source of all, which the Greek philosophers termed as the monad. I'm sorry, I'd be pissed. I just put the fire out on my roof, and you bitches light it up again. Because <laughs> fuck you, that's why. <laughs> you need fuck. to be involved in the connectedness. <laughs> Aside from fire, there were several other and perhaps more widely used magical devices for protection. There was much cause for precaution, as evil spirits were believed to attack and even possess people on Samhain. It was thought that at this time they would roam the land looking for new bodies to inhabit for the coming year. Looking for a new shell, bitches. <laughs> One <a> fucking crab. <laughs> crabs. One folktale warned of a spirit in the form of a great black sow, which would stalk the attendees of the bonfire and attack the last person to leave. I'm sorry, isn't a sow a cow? No, it's a female pig. Oh, it's a pig, you're right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it was some fucking farm animal. Because of this threat, traveling alone was generally avoided, and if it had to be done, the traveler would have to carry charms, such as a hazel stick or a black-shafted knife, to repel any attacks. I mean, I understand the knife. Yeah. <laughs> if you're getting hunted down by a giant black pig, a knife might help you. The hazel stick, Not so much. Not. No. <laughs> Not unless it's got the fucking attention span of a dog and you go, fetch! <laughs> At home, charms would be placed around the doorways to keep out unwanted spectral guests. Well, that's still a practice, Gary, yeah. today. No, we do that. We have witch bells on our door. <laughs> like, fuck you guys, you can't come in. Yeah. Another method of defense was the use of disguise. People would dress up in costumes that would look like evil spirits, deceiving any would-be supernatural assailants into passing them over as one of their own. This could have also been believed to intimidate them by posing as the more powerful spirit. That's hilarious. Our modern custom of dressing up on Halloween is possibly a vestige to this ancient practice. I mean, that would be kind of funny if it is, because, like, people dress up as the stupidest shit mm -hmm. sometimes. <laughs> All... I'm a stronger spirit than you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Chucky, shut the fuck up. <laughs> I mean, he was a serial killer trapped in a doll's body. So... All right, sorry, I should have come up with a better example. Probably. Also, as a tactic of deception, pranking okay. was used to confuse malicious spirits. Bingo. What, one method example is where you encounter a changeling fairy. Reference to our demon possession episode, you boil eggshells in water to get the changeling to reveal its true identity. What? I don't know how, but sure, why not? You boil eggshells in water to yeah. get the changeling to reveal its true identity. Yeah. 
<laughs> Sorry, all I could picture is this psycho old woman boiling eggshells over a stove, screaming at her baby to, sh- to show its true form. You know, the worst that part about child. it is that's probably exactly how that went. <laughs> oh, God. It seems that this- I'm boiling the shells. You need to show me your true form, you stupid bitch. Mama. <laughs> 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 It seems that this form of fighting fire with fire as supernatural entities, particularly the fairies, were known for their deceit. Like, Don't lie to me, you stupid <laughs> fairy bitch. You're not my baby. The concept of the ward may be at the root of many of our contemporary Halloween traditions. Trick-or-treating is possibly an echo of ancient people's methods of dealing with intrusive spirits through pranking or sacrificial appeasement. I will take sacrificial appeasement, thank you. Sacrifice! Sacrifice! (laughs) Sacrifice! A legend regarding the Fomorians, the supernatural race who ruled Ireland before the Tua de Danan, states that they would demand tribute of food and even children every Samhain, taking them back to their island kingdom. If this tribute was not paid, people would suffer attacks and misfortune wrought by Fomorians. What was once done in a serious manner is now acted out by children for mere entertainment. It is clear that if these traditions can indeed be traced back to antiquity, the original meaning and intent behind them has probably been lost. There is a debate over whether many of our modern holiday traditions are actually derived from ancient paganism. Oh. Yeah, I know there's no debate on that. I was going to say, that's that's not a debate. But even if we cannot deny a clear historical transmission or many discover a much more recent genesis, it does not necessarily mean that there is no connection. Well, of course, it's been proven there has one. Yeah, no, we, we've Much of we the old that. ways have indeed been lost, but maybe they continue to resurface out of the collective unconscious, an inherent need within human nature to express the inner mystic, to connect with and honor the transcendent, even if we are not consciously aware of it. The fact that Halloween has become one of the most popular holidays in America, and in a way is celebrated in much the same way as our ancestors, may be a testament to this. While Samhain can be a harbinger of wickedness, it can also be that of positivity and spiritual reunion, as all spirits, good and bad, can come to interact with the living. This was a time to venerate and commune with the spirits of the ancestors. It has been debated among scholars to the extent to which Samhain was actually a festival of the dead, but the cemetery containing a large quantity of human remains unearthed at the Hill of Ward, which undoubtedly is connected to Samhain, seems to lend credibility to this idea, initially posted by anthropologist Sir James Fraser. There is a belief that the souls of the departed would return home on Samhain, and so preparations would be made to welcome them, such as setting them a place at the dinner table. The belief that the dead would return to the world of the living at this time of year is not limited to Ireland, but can be seen worldwide, notably in the Mexican Dia de los Muertos. Another disputed theory put forth by Professor John Rees was that Samhain was the Celtic New Year, although the evidence for this is scant. In fact, it is difficult to know within any degree of certainty exactly what the Celts believed, or how they expressed those beliefs. The only written records come from the Roman and medieval Christian scribes, both of whom probably had biases Mm. and reasons to skew or even rewrite history to gain advantage against their religious and political adversaries. Hmm. History is only written by the winners. (laughs) 
I want to keep the podcast focused on content that entertains, informs, and is mindful of your time. One way to accomplish this is direct listener support. Your support would help the show grow so much, so I've set up a link where you can quickly and easily support the show. The whole thing will take 30 seconds. It's glow.fm forward slash something wicked. That's glow.fm forward slash S-O-M-E-T-H-I-N-G-W-I-C-K-E-D. We're asking for $3 a month, but you can contribute as much or as little as you'd like. If something wicked is part of your day or week and you love what we're doing, please visit glow.fm forward slash something wicked and support us any way you can today. It's dead simple and again will take no more than 30 seconds. Click the link in the show notes, pay with Apple or Google Pay, and click the link of the podcast player that you want to use. You can listen anywhere at any time. Happy listening! There is also skepticism towards the degree of political centralization in the descriptions of ancient Ireland, as it is thought to have been balkanized into many tribes. However, archaeological discoveries continue to be made which verify some of these accounts. For instance, the 17th century priest Geoffrey Keating, whose historical accounts had been considered unreliable, appears to have more credibility in light of the discoveries at the Hill of Ward. It was his account that stated that on Samhain, a great fire was lit at Tlachta, and torches from it were carried back to every home. The Celtic religious order known as the Druids held a great festival each year on the evening before their new year. This festival was celebrated in honor of the god Samhain, the Druid god of death, and was known as All Hallowtide. The Druids believed in the supernatural and tried to placate the lord of death with offerings. They also believed that on this day, the souls of those who had died during previous year began their journey to another world. Druids believed that souls of the dead returned to their former homes to be entertained by the living. Bonfires were built atop hills so they may find their way. Suitable food and shelter were provided to these spirits or else they would cast spells, cause havoc, steal infants, destroy crops, kill farm animals, and create terror as they haunted the living. Eating infants? Yep. Stealing fucking infants? Like, why? I mean, I guess, yeah, give them food and shelter. Or we'll burn your or shit down. burn your shit down. Burn the motherfucker down, Pookie. <laughs> they didn't give us candy. <laughs> we will eat your children. Oh, that song. Eat the children. Rah. Eat the children. Rah. Oh, my God. <laughs> An alt The spirits demanded placating by giving them a type of worship and offering. This is also a version of the action that Trick or Treat emulates today. The community also sacrificed animals and offered fruits and vegetables so the spirits would keep their distance. The cold and darkness of winter and the presence of spirits are reasons why Halloween relates to images of death and evil. Another component of Samhain worthy of study was its association with magic. As the veil thinned, magical energies were thought to increase, becoming accessible to even the least mystical human beings, lending extra power to any spell work that might be performed. Samhain folk magic seemed to center on divination. The idea behind divination is that spirits could manipulate material objects to communicate and signify answers to questions and give prophecy. Holy shit, the accuracy on that one. Yup. No, it's, it's not easy trying to 
track down shit that actually gets it right for yeah, once. No, so seriously. that makes me happy. Really? A person would manipulate an object that introduced an element of chance, giving an entity an opportunity to direct the outcome, and the result would be recorded and interpreted as a message from beyond. One example of this during Samhain was to place objects such as stones and nuts into the fire and observe its effects on them. Sacrifice! <laughs> sacrifice! <laughs> God damn it! <laughs> okay. <sighs> The burn pattern on a stone, or the way in which a nut popped, provided information <laughs> about the quarant's life. This was commonly done to predict the birth of an important person, what one might achieve in one's life, and who they might marry. This also ties into the history of bobbing for apples. What? Really? Mm-hmm. The tradition of bobbing for apples dates to the Roman invasion of Britain when the conquering army merged their own celebrations with traditional Celtic festivals, way back in 43 AD, BT dubs. During an annual celebration, young unmarried people tried to bite into an apple floating in water or hanging from a string on a line. The first person to bite into the apple would be the next one to be allowed to marry. <laughs> Why? Apple bobbing was appropriated in the Irish festival Samhain, with apples being a sign of fertility and abundance. At least it's not an egg. <laughs> Both apple bobbing and apple on a string are mentioned in 18th century Ireland by Charles Valency in his book Collectinia de Rebus Hibernicus. A maiden who placed the apple she bobbed under her pillow was said to dream of her future sweetheart. In northeast England, bobbing apple is called dookie what the <laughs> or fuck? ducking apple. Who names these things? <laughs> So the game was originally for romantic means, not spoopy ones. It was a courting ritual and was a popular way to bring young lovers together to help determine whether they were soulmates or yep, not. Yeah, because uh, that's definitely how that works. <laughs> On Samhain, it was believed that the laws of time and space became less defined. Past, present, and future began to bleed together, making predictions for future events more auspicious. The fact that many of these divinations were concerned with the prospects of new beginnings was one piece of evidence that Reese used to suggest that Samhain was a Celtic New Year. Divination is part of a long and rich history of human beings connecting with the supernatural to perceive wisdom and insight, as well as be granted with miraculous powers. The Greeks had one of the most renowned prophecy traditions in the world. In the case of the oracles, a physical medium for communication was bypassed and spirits would speak directly through the channeler while in a deep trance. And that sounds like possession. Sometimes considered to be a form of temporary possession. I told you so. And that the spirit would assume control over the vessel of the body to interact with those in the material world. It was believed that the god Apollo himself would speak through the oracle of Delphi, Pythia. The oracle would induce a trance state through the inhalation of intoxicating fumes which naturally emanated from the crevices of the sacred cave. Wanna get high? <laughs> So that episode of Doctor Who, when he went to Pompeii, is not that historically inaccurate, people. Just remember. In this case, the interaction was instigated, rather than warded against, as the entity was believed to be a benevolent deity. Unlike the practices described earlier, this was not done by the average person, but rather by select initiated and trained practitioners. These were often seen as chosen individuals through divine providence who were blessed with innate mystical abilities beyond that of the average person. The virtue and value of the oracular tradition is well tested to. 
and its influence in shape in Greek culture was significant. James Gardner wrote, Its responses revealed many a tyrant and foretold its fate. Through its means, many an unhappy being was saved from destruction, and many perplexed mortal guided in the right way. It encouraged useful institutions and promoted the progress of useful discoveries. Its moral influence was on the side of virtue, and its political influence in favor of the advancement of civil liberty. We see similar tradition in the Celtic onwinity and soothsayers of Wales recorded in the 12th century. Parallels have been drawn between them and the transposition of Vodan and Afro-Caribbean religions. It is said that, quote, the trance of the Anwanidian was so deep that it appeared to be a kind of possession, from which they had to be violently roused to waken. <laughs> the harnessing of magical powers through invocation of spirits could have been another function for the donning of costumes during Samhain. Similar practices were carried out by the Siberian shamans and Native American medicine men. By wearing the skin of an animal, the practitioner channeled and embodied its essence. Animals were beings of great spiritual import in many cultures due to their purity of mind and purpose, as well as their harmonious relationship to nature. In contrast to the corruptibility of humans and their propensity to go astray from the natural flow of life. This divine status was expressed in the myriad chimeric deities depicted with animal features, notably in the Egyptian pantheon, but also seen in the Celtic horn god Kernonos, whose image was embossed on an ancient silver cauldron unearthed in Denmark. That's neat. The Native Americans had the animal totems. Echoes of the animal reverence can be seen in the image of the stable in which the newborn Christ lay in the manger. In Siberian and Native American traditions, we see a methodological variation from more passive channeling of the oracle to the concept of the soul flight, in which the person's soul would leave the body, traveling to the etheric realm to commune with and receive aid from their spirit guides. Finn McCool, who was mentioned earlier, could be seen as a shamanic figure. Living on the margins of society, raised in the wilderness by two mysterious druid mentors, and trained as an adept seer who later embarked on many journeys to the other world. Shamanic practices are the oldest known form of spirituality, primarily seen in hunter-gatherer societies, who had a more direct connection with the wild. While the Celts developed into a pastoral society, they still retained their primitive nature and were in many ways anachronistic, seen as uncivilized in the eyes of the Romans. Yeah, but like, everyone's uncivilized in the eyes of the Romans. Yeah, very true. <laughs> Fucking seriously. Therefore, it is not a stretch to imagine such a practice, surviving within Celtic nature, into the common era. Whether it was to travel to the spirit world, or to come under the direct influence of a spirit, the goal was the same, in establishing a connection with the divine for the benefit of the tribe and to provide healing and knowledge. But all that changed, as stated before, when the Middle Ages rolled out. <laughs> yeah, of course it did. All of that ancient sacred knowledge and the power that the various tribes dedicated to and received from the gods and spirits started to fade into the shadows of the Holy Mother Church. <laughs> Saw that one coming. <laughs> Along with the early Christians adopting the tradition of burning the bonefires, they also had started the tradition of what was called the Dumb Supper. The what? <laughs> the the dumb supper dumb supper is that yep. what you just said <laughs> what the fuck <laughs> this was a celebration in which food was consumed by celebrants but only after their ancestors to join giving families a chance to interact with the spirits until they left following dinner children would play games to entertain the dead while adults would update the dead on the past year's news 
That night, the doors and windows might be left open for the dead to come in and eat cakes that have been left for them. I don't think that's for the spirits. I think that's just <laughs> asking for fucking trouble. Yep. <laughs> Let me go eat those cakes. Nom, 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 nom. <laughs> so some traditions were still clung to. But as Christianity gained a foothold in pagan communities, church leaders attempted to reframe Samhain as a Christian celebration. Fucking shocker. <laughs> yeah, really. The first attempt was by Pope Boniface in the 5th century. He moved the celebration to May 13th and specified it as a day celebrating saints and martyrs. The fire festivals of October and November, however, did not end with this decree. Well, no shit. You can't just move a freaking holiday date just because you... This is not how it works. Yeah, but don't they do that shit anyway? Pretty much. Because, like... For example, there's uh, Queen Victoria's Day. I know it's like a Canadian holiday, Mm -hmm. but sometimes it's on May 19th, sometimes it's on May 20th, but it depends on the year, and I don't quite understand why that keeps changing. I don't know. Like Thanksgiving, on how it's like the last Thursday of November every year, but that's a different date every Mm -hmm. year. I don't know. I don't fucking get it. In the 9th century, Pope Gregory moved the celebration back to the time of the fire festivals, but declared All Saints Day on November 1st and All Souls Day on November 2nd. All Saints Day, as later created, was also known as All Hallows Day. The night before then, on which a vigil was held, was known as All Hallows Evening. Much later in Scotland, it was shortened to Hallows Eve, and then eventually Halloween. What a progression, but that makes so much sense. Yep. The day of November 2nd was then turned into All Souls Day in remembrance of all the souls of deceased Christians, with special attention to the souls still in purgatory. Just the Christians. That's nice. (laughs) Today, these three days are known in the Christian tradition as the All Hallowtide, or Hallow Mass. This was still not really Halloween, however. That holiday still had a long way to go. But this form of celebration did resemble it in important ways and would eventually give rise to it as it stuck around and developed in medieval through early modern Europe. By the late Middle Ages, many customs had developed surrounding the All Hallowtide in Western and Central European countries. Bells were rung in the morning of the dead across cities. Churches displayed holy relics and encouraged parishioners to dress up in costumes resembling their favorite saints. Another interesting tradition of dressing up on this day revolved around the Dance of Death, or Dance Macabre. It came from a medieval Christian artistic allegory meant to show that both king and peasant were equal in death, joining together in the eternal dance, and that only service to God is what mattered in the end. Some Christians believe that the dead actually rose on this night to perform this dance. In parties and gatherings, people dressed up as people from all social backgrounds and danced together. This reminded medieval Christians that all earthly things eventually ended. I love that painting and the composition. They are both gorgeous pieces of art. They really are. I've never heard of that, but I'd really like to see it. That sounds really cool. And the poem in accordance with this painting goes as follows. Emperor nor sword won't help you out. Scepter and crown are worthless here. I've taken you by the hand, for you must come to my dance. Wow, that's really pretty. Like I said, gorgeous. The concept of souling had developed as well. As early as the 14th century, people, typically children of a poor background, would go door-to-door asking for soul cakes, or har cakes in England. Oh, so it's kind of like a little beggar's thing. Please, sir, can I have some more? (laughs) Oliver Twist this bitch. Yes. 
The cakes had crosses on them and made out of thin parkin, which is a gingerbread cake traditionally made with oatmeal and black treacle, a type of molasses. That sounds Blech. gross. <laughs> the cakes were referred to as souls and were given to the poor children going door to door, singing and saying prayers for the souls of the givers and their friends. That just sounds rude. <laughs> This tradition was practiced from the medieval period in England all the way into the 1930s. Holy shit. In Sheffield and Cheshire, the custom has continued into modern times. The practice of giving and eating soul cakes continues in other countries as well, such as Portugal and the Philippines. All I can think right now is, I'm gonna eat your soul <laughs> every time you say soul cake. Yep. In the U.S., some churches during All Hallowtide have invited people to come receive sweets from them and have offered to pray for the souls of their friends, relatives, or even pets as they do so. That just sounds like religious entrapment. Did you really expect anything less from the fucking Catholic Church, though? No, no, I don't, because I used to actually have a church bus that did the same thing. They would offer candy to the kids as, a, like, a motivation to keep going back to church. And that ties in right there with... I'll show you my puppy in the back of the van if you want to be my altar boy. <laughs> Ooh, piece of candy. Wait, that's not candy. Oh, no. Candy doesn't <laughs> taste salty, Father McDaniel. Oh, no. We're going to hell. <laughs> Thanks. Among the Catholics and Lutherans, some parishioners have their soul cakes blessed by a priest before being distributed. In exchange, the children promise to pray for the souls of the deceased relatives of the giver during the month of November which is a month dedicated to praying for the holy souls. Any leftover soul cakes are shared among the distributing family or given to the poor. The medieval Christians also thought that the souls from purgatory would stop at earth on their way to heaven on this day, and food was left out for them. <laughs> these young solars would sometimes symbolically imitate these spirits and accept offerings on their behalf. Well, a fucking course. They're going to get free shit. It's like, I'm, I'm totally here. For, uh, Grandpa. Grandpa really wanted me to have, like, three extra cakes. Definitely. Definitely three extra okay, cakes. Okay, calm your tits, Rain Man. Definitely three extra cakes. Jesus Christ. Yep. Dressing up may have also been a way to protect oneself from the spirits. While souling, these children carried lanterns made from hollowed turnips. I like that it's called souling. Also, did you say turnips? Yeah. Fucking what? <laughs> soul cake, soul cake. Pray your good mistress of soul cake. One for Peter, two for Paul, three for him that made us all. Yes, this was really the little hymn that kids would sing at the doors of people. It's like a Christmas carol, just fucking creepy. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh. It's important to note that this activity may have also been more common practice on Christmas at certain times, however, which may be where collecting charity money by going Christmas caroling comes from. Ah. Another common tradition in medieval times was to light candles and memories of the dead, something which is still a very common practice. Yeah, no, it is. It's just, I guess, normal. They were also sometimes meant to be a guide for benevolent spirits to come back to their families and to keep the demons of Satan back. Bowls of milk and other foods were also left at the sides of graves in parts of Europe. Maybe it's to keep the fae away. Wouldn't shock me, honestly. Right. All the trickster spirits have some milk. Oh, God. <laughs> 
In the 16th century, interpretation of how to celebrate the All Hallowtide began to vary as Christianity began to split into a large number of denominations following the Protestant Reformation. Many groups regarded the concept of purgatory as papist or Catholic nonsense. While other Protestants held on to these beliefs or developed equivalents through different interpretations of the Bible. I grew up Protestant and I never even like heard of that. The purgatory that I heard of, I just figured was like a middle limbo sort of state not like the first level of hell or yeah see that's what i was raised on right or anything going off of the whole dante's inferno thing yeah yeah no i it's weird the reformation caused quite a bit of dispute among europeans not all of it friendly no really (laughs) just noticed how often we rip on the catholics well they kind of give us a lot of material to work with so In 1605, a radical named Guy Fawkes attempted to blow up the English House of Lords in order to assassinate the Protestant King James I in an attempt to bring England back to the Catholic Church. His plot failed, and he was arrested on November 5th and later executed. Ever since then, November 5th remained as Guy Fawkes Day, or Bonfire Night, throughout much of England. Remember, remember the 5th of November. Gunpowder, treason, and plot. I see no reason why gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. Guy Fawkes, Guy Fawkes, t'was his intent to blow up the king and the parliament. Three score barrels of powder below, poor old England to overthrow. By God's providence, he was catched with a dark lantern and burning match. Holler boys, holler boys, let the bells ring. Holler boys, holler boys, God save the king. I've always loved that poem. I'm pretty sure that I've heard that before, but only part of it, because that first part sounds really familiar, but not like the part where it starts going Guy Fox, Guy Fox. I, I didn't hear anything. It's after because that. nobody usually says it beyond that. They just say, "Remember, remember the fifth of November, gunpowder, treason, and plot." Like that's the most anybody ever hears. I think there's like one stanza after that, but yeah, no, it's kind of ridiculous. But I like his name, Guy Fox. <laughs> It's not a Halloween celebration, but many traditions, such as lighting bonfires with his effigy on top of them, were adopted by the English as secular celebrations, mocking Guy Fawkes' failure, and may have influenced Halloween as well. Burning effigies! Honestly, (laughs) I love celebrations that have some sort of effigy running in them. Yeah. The next tradition comes from European culture making its way to the New World. Throughout the 17th and 18th century, the Americans were colonized primarily by the Spanish, Portuguese, English, French, and Dutch. Christianity, of course, came with them in all Hallowtide religious celebrations. In the 13 colonies of America, many different kinds of Christians could be found. To groups like the Puritans, All Hallows' Eve was not celebrated whatsoever, along with other church holidays like Christmas and Easter. Well, no shit, because they were the most stuck-up assholes in existence. Yeah, no, really. But other groups like Catholics and Anglicans still recognized it. Time passed, and eventually the 13th English colonies became their own country and opened their doors to people across Europe. One main group is essential to this story, the Irish, with some help from the Scottish, though not as many Scots came to America. Today, around 30% of Americans have Irish ancestry, compared to about 8% with Scottish ancestry, though the Scottish are included under Irish. That's probably very frustrating to them. Probably. These Irishmen and Scots brought with them some of the traditions of their home countries, some of which might have developed in recent centuries, other perhaps being far older. 
as they grew in number, more and more Americans became interested in them, the traditions. The Irish and Scottish especially practiced the art of turnip carving on Halloween. They were not used merely as lanterns, though, but may have had faces carved into them to represent souls in purgatory or to ward off evil spirits, such as the spirit of the infamous Jack of the Lantern. Yeah, actually, you mentioned it earlier with the turnips thing, and I forgot about that for a long time on where that came from, but I remember a couple of Halloween movies I saw last year that had that involved with the turnips. I feel like it would be difficult to carve and make a turnip into a lantern because of how small they are. Yeah. In America, however, they soon discovered a fruit for the job that was much easier to work with. The pumpkin. Alright, so that's where that comes in. And then we realized that pumpkin is good for so many different fucking things. Starbucks. <laughs> basic white bitches. Pumpkin spice lattes. Oh my god, I gotta go to the coffee shop to get more pumpkin to shove down my throat. <laughs> <laughs> Funny enough, I kind of think that I'm one of those basic bitches. I don't like pumpkin spice lattes per se, but I'm starting to like pumpkin a little more, and I've wished for the longest time that I liked it. Yeah, yeah, no. Guilty pleasures and all. <laughs> yeah, you know. We all basic white bitches sometimes. Pumpkins have been carved in America ever since the 1820s or 30s, though they weren't necessarily a Halloween practice, but rather just a fall activity. The Celts were happy to adopt the practice, and within a century, pumpkin carving became a Halloween thing. I prefer painting pumpkins. Don't get me wrong, because, you know, carving pumpkins means you get to play with sharp, pointy things, but, like... It's a lot less of a gross texture when you're just painting them instead of trying to pull all the guts out. True, it is a lot of fun. A lot easier. Fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, really. Harvest or autumn parties across America throughout the 1800s began picking up traditions that we would consider to be Halloween-ish, slowly evolving into our current holiday. And as a special side note slash Halloween treat, I found the story of Jack of the Lantern to share with you guys. Ooh. Story time! Yay, story time! <laughs> <laughs> yes. Stingy Jack, Drunk Jack, or Jack of the Lantern, is a character in pre-modern Irish folklore. He was a vile, lying, cheating, manipulative scoundrel who played tricks on people, stole from them, and was otherwise a burden to society. Oh, the amount of people I know. That reminds me of that song from Volbeat. What was it? Oh, you're right. It's, uh, oh, counting all the assholes in the room. Well, I'm definitely not alone. I'm not alone. Yeah, counting. <laughs> I love that fucking song. Same. Too many people we know that are assholes. Uh-huh. Moving on. <laughs> One night, Jack was drunk, go figure, wandering through the countryside. When he came upon the figure in the road... The figure turned out to be Satan. Satan had heard tales of Jack's depravity and simply had to come see Jack for himself. <laughs> he had to come see this train wreck for himself. Hey there, Satan. <laughs> he was just chilling down in hell and one of his demons was like, Yo boss, you gotta check out this fucking beach. And Satan was all, can't be any worse than any of the other. Oh, holy shit. <laughs> what the fuck is wrong with this guy? I gotta see this. Kind of reminds me of that scene from Constantine when Satan just shows up and is like, Hello, John. Yeah. John, hello. You're the one soul I would come up here to collect myself. <laughs> Hands down, best rendition of the devil I have ever seen. 
Don't forget the show on Netflix, though, Lucifer. That one was really good. That's a perfect depiction, in my opinion, of Lucifer. You see, though, I see perfection as the hard-on that I have for Peter Stormer's version, so... I mean, that's fair, but, like, (laughs) come on, man. Still, there's a special place in my heart for that movie. Fair enough. Satan encountered Jack on the road, and he told him he was there to take his soul and bring him to hell. Jack grew quite depressed and begged Satan for him to satisfy just one last request. He asked Satan if he could have another drink before going to the eternal fires of hell. Satan agreed, and off they went to a nearby pub. Then, after drinking several ales, he asked Satan to pay by turning into a silver coin. A strange request, but fair enough. Not that I expected any more from you, said Satan, and he did so. However, when he did so, Jack stuck the coin in his pocket next to a crucifix, which prevented Satan to returning to his original form. Jack then demanded of Satan to let him live for another year. Satan agreed, and they parted ways. My question here is, how did he agree when he's a coin? Can't say that Satan was using his think-meat all too well that night. Honestly, he probably just got sloshed and was like, Sure, I'll pay, buddy. You're going to hell anyway. What's the harm? (laughs) (laughs) Last request, I guess. Time passed, and exactly one year later, in the same circumstances, Jack came upon Satan on the road again. Jack asked Satan once again for a final request. A much simpler request this time. Jack simply wanted an apple. That's it. Just some fruit before eternal damnation. I call bullshit. (laughs) Just straight up bullshit. (laughs) Satan agreed. Evidently, he had not learned his lesson from Jack's trickery. He went to the nearest apple tree to pick an apple. As he did so, Jack placed crucifixes around the tree, preventing Satan from leaving it because, Jesus Christ, he's suddenly Speedy Gonzalez? That? And where are you getting all the fucking crucifixes from? Like, what the shit? (laughs) Just, like, zip around the fucking tree and just put all the damn crosses down ironic that satan found himself in trouble after picking fruit from a tree oh my lanta you fucked hard really this situation sounds familiar doesn't it i mean maybe you know beginning of time apple tree ring a bell (laughs) never learn this must be a thing in satanic lore that i'm missing suddenly satan turned into fucking you baba from spirited away and can't say no if someone makes a request (laughs) that's gotta be it otherwise you just fail you're supposed to be the prince of lies and you can't sniff out that he's being a facetious little prick by asking for an apple of all things really (laughs) i think the biggest thing we learn here is that he never learns Needless to say, Satan was pissed. P-S-T, pissed. And demanded to be released. But once again, Jack forced him to accept his demands. I'll let you go, said Jack, but you must swear to never take me to hell. Satan was forced to agree, and once more, they parted ways. That doesn't feel like you can just do that. Eventually, though, Jack's lifestyle took a toll on him, and he did indeed die. His soul prepared to enter heaven, but as he approached the gates, God turned him away. There was no way Jack was going to enter heaven after he had lived such a sinful lifestyle. Just hard path. Nope. No thank you. (laughs) Jack then went to the gates of hell and begged Satan to allow him to come in. Hell, he supposed, was better than wandering another world alone for eternity. 
but Satan had made him a deal. <laughs> Jack was never to come to hell. Well, that fucking blew up, didn't it? I can just see this. Jack just chilling out of the velvet rope like, come on, man. I just left my jacket inside. Can't you ask one of your demons to come get me? God's riding the cotton pony right now, and I don't want to have to walk around Earth when I can't even get smashed. This is some bullshit. This is some straight up bullshit. <laughs> Instead of letting him in. Satan scooped up an ember from the fires of hell and gave it to Jack to be placed in a turnip to be used as a lantern for him to see as he wandered the earth at night for eternity. Fucking burn, dude. Can't come in, but I'll give you a light. He's like, nah, man, can't let you in, but here's a reminder how you fucked up as you stumble your hungover ass all over the planet. Oh, and in case you get snackish, no fruit for you. Here's a fucking turnip. Ask me for an apple? Fuck out of here. (laughs) (laughs) The fuck out. This ghostly figure, according to legend, could be seen wandering the roads in the countryside of Ireland in the darkness with his turnip lantern. He had earned his moniker, Jack of the Lantern or Jack O'Lantern. Tales of Stingy Jack vary quite a bit, but that was a very stereotypical version of the story, and thus a tradition was born. The idea of Stingy Jack wandering the countryside may have been encouraged by the Will o' the Wisp, a mythical spirit fire known scientifically in Latin as the Ignis Fatuus, or the Fool's Fire. These are naturally occurring births of flammable gas that appear over bogs and marshlands. The sudden appearance of flames of a variety of colors occasionally and suddenly flashing over the countryside encouraged all manner of folklore, as one might expect. I mean, yeah, that's actually pretty cool. When people observe these things, many no doubt think that it was truly Jack of the Lantern watering the countryside. I mean, I personally believe in Will-o'-the-Wisps. Yeah, me too. I really do believe in them, but I also believe in scientific things like, you know, the swamp lights and stuff like that that people see that think they're ghosts, but, you know, they're natural gas reflecting off of light. So, I believe in those too, but I think Will-o'-the-Wisps, like real ones, are harder to see because it falls under that category of kind of trying to stay in the shadows because humans are dicks and, you know, try to hurt or destroy anything they don't understand because they fear it. Ain't that the fucking truth? This was not only the tradition that the Irish and Scots brought with them to America, however. Other traditions survived as well. It was a common occurrence for children to dress up in costumes and go door-to-door asking for coins or food on this night, a practice known as guising, likely related to souling. As far as North America goes, this tradition was first reported to have been practiced in Ontario, Canada in the 1910s, and not long after was reported in the U.S. as well. Children were guising in Chicago by 1920, but in Anoka, Minnesota in 1920, they were already having Halloween parades. Today, the small American city outside of Minneapolis of around 17,000 people prides itself on being the Halloween capital of the world. Funny enough, though, I obviously am huge into Halloween and have never even heard of this town. Yeah, in my opinion, it was always Salem, Mass. Yeah, let alone that they're supposed to be the Halloween capital of the world. If they really are, like they live up to that name, you know, my apologies, but I'd never heard of it. This wasn't exactly trick-or-treating, though, and indeed the term trick-or-treat doesn't seem to come about until the late 1930s and was invented in America. That doesn't surprise me. In Ireland and Scotland, children might even have performed for treats, singing a song or playing a flute similar to another possible influence of trick-or-treating, and again, Christmas caroling, mumming. 
The people across Western Europe dressing up in costumes and performing around holidays to the public in hopes of a donation, much like current street performers still do. So what does the term trick-or-treat actually mean? While there is definitely a good degree of trickery that does go on during Halloween, this is almost always just harmless fun today. However, it was actually derived from a real set of circumstances. In Ireland and Scotland, people who gave to solars or geysers could expect good fortune, the treat, but those who denied giving gifts to them could expect misfortune, the trick. Some children, too impatient to wait for divine intervention, decided to bring the misfortune to these homes themselves. Yeah, they were pretty much like, Jesus, you're taking too long to give me some fucking candy, so I'm gonna break some shit in this person's house. Let's go. (laughs) In the early 20th century, children were accustomed to using the night of October 30th or November 4th in England as the night before bonfire night for all manner of pranks and vandalism. This night was called mischief night properties were egged windows and light bulbs were smashed wagons were disassembled placed on roofs and then reassembled on top of them and left there that's fucking wonderful let me go and tp your house it's fine (laughs) (laughs) like fuck your wagon it looks much better up here good luck getting it down you crotchety old scream (laughs) (laughs) fucking scream give me my fucking three musketeers The mischief eventually got way out of control. Mischief Night was a nationwide event for children to be burdens to society. Have you ever seen the movie The Crow? First off, if not, shame. Second, the whole Devil's Night? Yeah, that was a real thing that happened in Detroit for the longest time. In the early 1970s, the vandalism escalated to more destructive acts such as arson, This primarily took place in the inner city, but surrounding suburbs were often affected as well. They were just setting shit on fire everywhere. The destruction was the worst in the mid to late 1980s, with more than 800 fires set in 1984 alone, and a number in the hundreds each subsequent year until 2011. Way to fucking escalate shit. Seriously. Honestly, it feels like we're coming full circle to the, I'm gonna burn your house down. The damage was exacerbated by the severe population decline and widespread abandonment of buildings that occurred in Detroit during the 70s and 80s. In 1995, Detroit city officials organized and established Angels Night on and around October 29th through the 31st. Each year, as many as 50,000 volunteers gather to patrol neighborhoods in the city. As a result of their efforts, the number of fires decreased to near-ordinary levels in the first decade of the 21st century. In 2010, the number of reported fires increased to 169, a 42% increase compared to the previous year. By the end of the 2010s, the destructive element of Devil's Night in Detroit had largely ceased to exist. In 2018, a formal support of Angel's Night was ended with the city resources instead being allocated to host neighborhood Halloween parties. I mean, that's nice. How about just continue to prevent people setting shit on fire all around your city because not everybody's gonna want to go to a family-friendly community fucking halloween party some people just want to watch shit burn that's how it works yeah that's fair it's kind of similar to what the officials did back in the day getting back to where the subject started communities in america and canada soon came together to do something about the mischief They decided to redirect the children's energy toward harmless youth social fun and decided to make Halloween a night for positive activity. When the children were bribed with candy, the deal was struck. 
and they were tamed. Everybody is always bribing people with <laughs> or bribing children with candy. That is not the answer, I promise. Of course. You give the little bits diabetes on a stick and let them sugar grass into submission. Solid plan. <laughs> Trick-or-treating soon became a semi-official community event. As the kids grew up, however, they found themselves reluctant to stop having Halloween fun, and Halloween became a party for people of all ages. I mean, why did the kids get all the fun? Well, you see, part of that could be because of the fact that you have a bunch of bag of dicks adults that do the whole, aren't you a bit old to be trick-or-treating to teenagers, and then they end up doing stupid shit like TPing your house later because fuck you, that's why. I'm not saying that all teens will retaliate, but I will say that if teens stop at my house, I will still give them candy, mostly because I don't feel like spending the following morning cleaning gross shit off my house because they can still be shifty little motherfuckers. You're not wrong. Mm -mm. <laughs> the modern day Halloween celebration was now taking place. A myriad of European traditions, mainly from Ireland and Scotland, were giving birth to this new holiday in America and Canada. Sugar rations during the Second World War put a damper on the celebration, but once the war was over in the 1940s, the holiday took off. Halloween wasn't so much about religion anymore, though some churches still organized Halloween get-togethers and things along those lines for children and families. You know, like, hell houses? The fuck is a hell house? The evangelicals answered to haunted houses. You want incredibly offensive, disgusting, and nightmare-fueled-induced therapy sessions for your kids? Take them to one. They're super fun. And a whole mess of just extra that I will maybe go over in the future. Not dealing with that headache now. Anyway, some decent churches do host the ever-popular Trunk or Treat event, where participants set up giving out candy in the parking lot, providing a safe and public area for the little bits to get candy. So, some positivity. The All Hallowtide is certainly important for Christians, but Halloween is kind of the secular offshoot. Today, we have several traditions, whether you embrace the commercialized, child-taming version, or follow the path of the old ways and celebrate Samhain with whatever path of paganism you follow. Pagans who embrace the Celtic traditions with the intent of reintroducing them faithfully into modern paganism are called Celtic Reconstructions. This tradition is called Ihahauna and celebrates the mating between Tuatha de Danann gods Dagda and River Uni. Celtic Reconstructionists celebrate by placing juniper decorations around their homes and creating an altar for the dead, where a feast is held in honor of deceased loved ones. A broad revival of Samhain resembling its traditional pagan form began in the 1980s with the growing popularity of Wicca. Wicca celebration of Samhain takes place in many forms. The traditional fire ceremonies to celebrations that embrace many aspects of modern Halloween, as well as activities related to honoring nature and ancestors. Wiccans look at Samhain as the passing of the year, aka the Witch's New Year, and incorporate common Wiccan traditions into the celebration. And in the Druid tradition, as stated before, Samhain celebrates the dead with a festival on October 31st and usually features a bonfire and communion with the dead. American pagans often hold music and dance festivals called Witches' Balls in proximity to Samhain. I want to go to a Witches' Ball. That sounds freaking great. Yeah, same. And that just about brings us up to this year and the ways and history of Halloween. Halloween is truly a time-honored celebration that delights and scares family, friends, and loved ones of all ages. I personally am looking forward to going trick-or-treating with my amazing niece and nephew, carrying on the traditions of the old ways, and tapping into the magics and energies that Samhain provides. Whatever your traditions may be on this ancient night, my lovelies, have fun, be safe, 
and happy Halloween or blessed Samhain to all my sisters and brothers. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. Tune in next time for more crazy killers and ghastly ghouls. Don't forget to follow us on Anchor. Click the links in the show notes to support us on Glow. Check out our website, grab your official Something Wicked merch at our store, and hop on over to our Facebook group for info on upcoming episodes. Later!